The word why, what a curious word. The kind of word that can make us cringe, feel defensive, or even distant. But you know, sometimes why is the key. A key that can unlock so much to our lives. Join me as we explore the why with fascinating contributors to the world. Those that entertain us, inform us, teach us about life, and if we're lucky, inspire the next in all of us. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and welcome to Headroom, a production of Rainlight and co-produced by Old Soul. Let's go. Well, I don't know what's happened in 2022, but uh, these conversations that I've had continue to, uh, it's like one one ups the other. And uh, this is another example of that. It's, it's really going to be exciting to spend some time with uh, James J.C. Curley, goes by J.C., and uh, the iconic brand Gibson Guitars. Uh, and he's right down here in Nashville. Uh, I'm just in a suburb here and uh, taking advantage of, of remote technology. But J.C., it's fantastic to spend some time with you. I want to dive right into this because you've been a part of iconic brands, right? You helped revive Levi, uh, Gibson, right? The history, right? And when did this start for you? I mean, as a kid, were you all about, were there things, were you, I imagine a young JC like hoarding onto things that just meant something, right? There was something about them. Was that you as a kid? Yeah, I, uh, I had this, uh, at the time, I didn't know it, but looking back, I had this amazing opportunity. Uh, my father was a Navy helicopter pilot and then ended up uh, with NATO, and he was kind of a defense ambassador for Canada and London. So, you know, he had an amazing career, but he, he'll just tell you, hey, man, I'm a Navy helicopter pilot, flew off the Intrepid and uh, did some cool things. And uh, and then my mother's this free spirit, uh, you know, amazing person from uh, Nova Scotia, Canada, but their common denominator was music. And so... And we, I went to 11 different schools and I lived all over the world. And, and so when you don't have those kind of roots, the roots become a little different for you and you start to see things around the world. And, you know, we talked today about diversity and inclusion. Well, I, I grew up in a diverse world. You had to be inclusive and be included to be part of a scene. So, you know, with that in mind, I always knew I loved that pioneering spirit. My dad had it. My grandfather had it when he moved from London as an orphan to, to uh, Canada to be in the RCMP. So I think that pioneering spirit and new opportunities and exploring just sort of transcended into a, a passion for that and discovering things and then seeing if you could actually not just discover it, but make a contribution to it. So what's interesting is you and I are in Nashville, right? Home of country music. Mm -hmm. And someone might argue, some might argue that if you grew up here and it's in your, it's in your bones, right? You, you just, you hear that sound, you know, you're in Nashville, you know, you're in country music land, right? But your experience being in 11 different schools, being around the world in that regard, how had, how did you utilize that or flip the script for you when you think about, like, if we go back to Levi, right? Even before Gibson, if you're sitting in your office and you're you're just sort of iterating, you're you're trying to really think about it from a brand perspective. Do you have an yeah. advantage because you were able to see and experience different cultures? Yeah, I, I think you do. Again, as I said, you don't know it at the time, but looking back, I mean, I uh, I was uh, opened up to cultures and languages, and and in a very non-judgmental both era, but also as a young kid. I mean, I I. Uh, I showed up in, in uh, Washington, D.C. when my dad was posted to the embassy and we lived out in Virginia and we went to the local elementary school on Labor Day because we didn't know any better. And I'm the only white kid in my class. And I look around as a third grader. I'm like, this is awesome. Like, 
I get to be in the most different setting I've ever thought and engage with these kids in third grade. And then a year later, the Canadian government says, oh, you have to speak French and learn French. So now all of a sudden we're at a private school, which you couldn't get a wider spectrum of experience. And at the time, um, I have a twin brother, an older brother one year and a younger sister. And and people would say, well, are you ready for the new school? And I'd be like, is this school ready for us? You know, the, the Curly family. And so we we leaned into it. And my mother would always say, hey, let's act like we're going to live here forever. And my dad would say, let's respect the community and, and meet people before things happen. Either we break a neighbor's window or something. So we we grew up in this cultural dynamic that 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 kind of positively forced you to lean in. And then when I'm sitting at Levi's, I mean, it's, it's funny you say that. Um, uh, I was surrounded and I surrounded myself by music. I had music posters and I had literally a drum set and guitars outside of my office there. Because if you think about Levi's, it was as synonymous with music as any other brand. And, and growing up, I, I always wore Levi's. I grew up in a musical family. I'm a musician. So I think the center point of my journey, and again, I don't say it about me. I say it about the situation is authenticity. I grew up in an authentically diverse, inclusive, culturally wide open world and and uh, and took advantage of it um, when I didn't even know what advantage meant. Tell me about your relationship with fear, because I don't get the sense that you and maybe your family, it's almost like you describe a band when you've got, you know, you're a twin yeah. and the different yeah. siblings in your parents. Yeah. Uh, Cause we're going to, I, I want to, at some point we're going to talk about the transition from Levi to Gibson. And, you know, sure. even that transition I think is incredibly fascinating for entrepreneurs because yeah. there's a lot of gusto yeah. in there, um, yeah. which I applaud you for, but talk about the experience. We talk about failure with young people or young artists and how do they internalize or deal with that? What was that like for you growing up? Because I don't get that sense that it, this seems to be this great confidence or, or just, Confidence in the constitution of you, who you were at each stage. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's, um, you know, sometimes if you're always the new kid or you're, you know, you're, you ask questions like, will I fit in? What, what's it going to be like? We moved so fast in life at 11 schools and that you, you almost didn't have time. And so, um, you know, and I used to watch my dad speak to as a, you know, as a Navy commander on a ship and, and, and he would speak to the, troops, so to speak. And he did it with such a, a level of confidence, but also down to earth. There was just this humble spirit about my dad, who was this decorated naval aviator, but he understood how to set the tone. And then you think about tone for engaging in life, but you also think about tone in music. And I think understanding your tone matters. And now, again, I, I say as a kid, I didn't know what any of that meant, but um, and my dad used to say, hey, fail fast forward. You know, like you're going to fail at something and then fast forward through it because the, the faster you get through it, the more you get to success. And whether that was in a sports realm or whether it's the first time I started playing on a stage and maybe mess something up, he's like, OK, you think you're going to mess that song up again? I said, no way. He goes, good. Fail fast forward. And it just gives you that sort of innate confidence. But I think that the it's, it's not it doesn't we never hit. I and mean, I can say this now. We we were never arrogant as a family. Wherever we were from, we were we were rooted in who we were. And I just love that pioneering, authentic spirit that now I can look back and say, wow, you know, I came from that fabric. Yeah, I get that sense too. I mean, I know we're we're not sitting in the same room, but I don't see it as arrogance. And and there's a lot of arrogance sort of in the in the entertainment world that people can sort of lean into. 
But I don't get that sense at all. If anything, it's maybe your mother and, and the Canadian, the Nova Scotia, right? There's yeah, just this, totally. this <laughs> uh, calmness about it. So take me into, I don't know a lot. I mean, your, your bio is, is really fascinating in the fact that you see Gibson's going through some struggles and you say, hey, why don't I pick up the phone and see if I can provide some assistance? I don't think that that's sort of normal protocol for folks to do. Um, where did that come from? Was that a big leap for you? Did you feel it in the moment or had you been, was that sort of people's experience of you? It, I, I don't think it was a big leap. I think it was a natural um, affinity. And, you, you know, as, as humans, I think if we see a situation that you can actually help, a lot of humans go, well, you know, they tell the story about what they would have done after it's done. Well, here's what I would have done, or I was thinking about that. And that's not, part of my DNA. My DNA is there's a situation that needs help and whatever that spectrum of help is, I try to lean in. And so, uh, so, you know, maybe the, the rapid story was, um, you know, I, uh, I, I moved to London right after university and, and uh, worked for M&M Mars and they had this amazing accelerated development program that I heard about. And I was like, well, hang on, I love M&Ms. And if there's a fast track to management, let me try that. I did that five years later. It was an unbelievable experience. I was part of the team that convinced the Mars brothers to invest $30 million in the Olympics to globally brand Snickers and then went there and executed it in Albertville in Barcelona as a 25 year old. And I'm like, wow, like I literally had an idea that someone listened to. And then, then it wasn't just take the idea. I had to execute it. I learned very early, like you have an idea, you better be able to back it up with execution. And then when I was at, at the Olympics, the Winter Olympics, I met the guys at Solomon Skis and they were cool. And they were kind of asking, should we be a ski company or could we be more? And I was like, guys, like, don't be looking as a ski company. Ask where the mountain's going to be in 10 years. And don't go after share of ski, go after the share of mountain. Like people are going to be, you know, wearing apparel and backpacks and helmets. And in the winter, they're going to be hiking. So let's be the mountain sports brand and a freedom action sports brand, not a ski company. And so I joined Solomon and did that and ended up being the, the president and CEO for North America. And I was part of that amazing era where we pivoted into freedom action sports. And I'm talking snowboarding, surfing, apparel, trail running, just an unbelievable ride. And then, uh, and then ended up, uh, this guy created a shoe called Keen Shoes. It's a toe protected sandal, kind of breathes, kind of protects. And he moved to Portland just when I was sort of when Solomon was going to Utah, I decided to stay in Portland. And he's like Doc from Back to the Future, an amazing guy named Rory First. And, and he's uh, he said, hey, would you consider joining, you know, Keen? And I was like, absolutely. And there was a really funny story we'll share in Franklin one day uh, when I come down or when you come to the garage. But he uh, it was basically my really first taste of, 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 of a startup. And it was unbelievable. And he trusted me to help craft and create this team and this culture and this dynamic back in 2005, six, where, where we could use social media as our platform because we had no marketing dollars. So we were truly a startup. We went from basically zero to 300 in less than five years. And we created something that no one knew they needed. And I think that's, you know, and I know that Steve Jobs' famous quote was, give them something they didn't know they need, but when they get it, you can't live without it. I just think that's an amazing, it's an amazing, it's not even a quote, it's just a philosophical approach. And so so taking that approach, you know, no one said, oh, I want a sandal that can also protect my toes, but we did it. And then we said, it's a hybrid shoe. And hybrid is about creating synergy with something. And then people will say, well, who needs a hybrid shoe? I'm like, 
people that live a hybrid life or want to live a hybrid life. Like, what's that? I'm like, who wants to create, play, and care in the environment and the outdoors and make sure that they've got the right equipment to, to if you know, to, to use. And so that was an unbelievable uh, step into entrepreneurialism, truly, yeah. where day we were building the team. And I remember, you know, the team saying, hey, JC, when do you think we're going to get too corporate? I'm like, we're not going to get corporate. Look at me. I'm not. But if one <laughs> of you step outside of the boundaries of common sense, we'll have to put a policy in and a policy. You guys are going to say, oh, we're getting corporate now that we have to have, you know, expense accounts or we have to, you know, fly coach, not business cloud. Like that's not corporate. That's because someone messed up. We got to do that. And I learned so much in that era of entrepreneurialism, so much so that on the expense account, I would make people divide the dollars they spent by the by the price of a pair of Keens to say, this is how many Keens shoes you would need to sell to pay for that trip or that meal. And if you figure that that was worth it, then awesome. If not, just ask yourself, what would you have done differently? And it just set a mindset that like, wow, we're investing, but it's all investing in a smart way. So that, that was an unbelievable ride. And then I had the opportunity to go to the White House when we built a, a factory in Portland and I sat with Obama and it was a whole insourcing seminar. And I'm like the token kind of hippie guy from Portland and keen shoes. And I'm talking <laughs> big CEOs were the only 10 of us. And at the very end of that conversation, he said, folks, we're going to wrap it up. This was Obama. And he said, what's the role of government? And he asked everyone kind of had a, I would say a professionally selfish answer around the state or their taxes. And I came to me and I said, well, Mr. President, I said, we're a young company. We're growing fast and we just don't understand how to engage with government, city, state, federal. We've never asked for anything because we don't want to owe anything. But I got to tell you, if it was up to me and what's the role of government, it's to turn the obstacle courses into opportunity courses for business. And that's all I said. And he was like, whoa, okay. He goes, let's go, folks. We're going to do the press uh, press conference. We walk down to the West Wing, you know, the big press conference. He, he stands up seven minutes later and says, folks, we're here to understand how to turn our government and our teams from an obstacle course into an opportunity course for business. We've got CEOs behind <laughs> us that support that. And Bill Ford, like, elbowing me going like, oh, man, he said that. You know, or some other CEO were like, that's what you just said. I'm like, yeah. So, and again, I think one of the challenges, and I know I'm going on a bit, but like, there's so many sophisticated business concepts and things going on. How do you, how do you simplify the essence so that it resonates, it gets remembered, and then others can amplify it? And that's, that's a good example of that. So then I did a few TED Talks, and then, and then, I, then Levi showed up, and they said, okay, let's talk. And I went down there, and I met everyone, and, and I was kind of mad at them, and that's in a whole other story. So, so he became a speechwriter for the president. So I love that story. What, it, what, but you know what it touches on, and I, I want to go back to when you were 25, and you, there's this thing that seems to be already repeating even in our conversation, which is you have, there's a great sense of agency that it seems that you display in yourself, the understanding of yourself, in so much that opinions are not something that you're concerned about. Yet, if you think about young people. And as they sort to develop and grow up, right, they, they listen to their teachers, they listen to their parents or their caregivers. And at some point, they kind of make a shift and say, you know, I've got a thought about this. And then it can take them a decade or two decades to kind of even get comfortable in that skin. Yet you were fast tracked for that. I don't know a lot of 25 year olds that have, you know, the <laughs> we'll keep it clean, but but have the yeah. wherewithal yeah. 
yeah. to not only have that, but then to be mindful and say, I've got to execute against that. Was there a pivotal moment where you shared something and people took notice of you being JC and they went, you know, that's a really interesting idea because to me, you saying that at the white house, that was, that had happened a thousand times for you. You had been prepping for that. You just yeah. didn't know it. Correct. Um, yeah, I don't know if there's a, a clear cut path to it, but, um, you know, I, I, um, and again, I, I go back to my dad a ton. I, I, I so admired him, not just because he was an amazing helicopter, he's an amazing dad, but he would, he, he taught us this notion of helicopter vision. And he would say, it's so cool where when you, when you fly in a helicopter, it's the only sort of amazing uh, machine and vehicle that you can hover. So he said, and he would tell us as kids, he goes, it's so cool to be able to, to be on the ground and in one minute, you're, you're up and then you can get higher and the perspective you get. And I, I was fortunate back then I could jump in the helicopter with it. He goes, guys, what do you see on the ground? And we're like the ground. He goes, okay, we got the headphones on. He goes, what do you see? We go, we can see more dad. We can see more, but in a weird way, we see less. If that makes sense, you see less detail, but you see more perspective. And then we would get way up there. And we're like, what do you see? Dad, we can see the ocean. We can see everything. He goes, but do you see more or less? And he would put us in this state of like, we see more, but the detail is less. And he says, then we'd land. He goes, okay, guys, that's helicopter vision. Get up and see the widest landscape possible to shape a vision. But if needed, you land that helicopter, you get out and you solve a situation, which is the essence of now not going there, but on the military side, that's what they did. And I just took that into life and said, wow, like, and he would say, if you don't start with a vision, you just kind of have a dream and a hope. but if the vision is crafted somehow, start there and work backwards. And so this notion of, uh, of you know, seeing the mountain as where's the mountain going to be and being the mountain sports company, getting going after the share of mountain, not the share of skis, and then going to Keen and saying, no, there's this, there's something that's never been articulated and good. We'll, we'll create a hybrid. This was in the zeitgeist of hybrid living. And then what was a, it really interesting was going to Levi's because I was able to then take that to scale. And that was the, that was the daunting opportunity where I got to tell you, I was like, I'm doing this little startup in Portland, Oregon and with this toe protected sandal and the folks at Levi's are like, okay. And, and the segue there, if I can go there is yeah, please. I go down and meet with them all. And I was not looking for a job. Keen was going awesome. We were having a riot and it was, you know, where you got to scale and all the stuff that comes with it. And I, uh, I've always worn Levi's all my life, all my life. My mother said, I'd rather have you in one pair of Levi's than 10 pairs of top skin. So this notion of authenticity was with me. And I went down and I was pretty direct with folks. I said, I knew you because of what someone did 30, 40 years ago. Influence my mother, influence me. My wife stopped wearing you. My kids don't even know what Levi's is. And you invented blue jeans. And somewhere along the journey, it's now a commoditized denim brand. I said, I want to know who's responsible. And you're sitting here in San Francisco, California, and it's the ultimate startup capital modern day. Think Tesla, Facebook, Twitter, Salesforce. I said, Levi's was the original startup. Let's be the 140-year-old startup. And, and people were like, what does that mean? I said, you leverage your iconic past. You don't live off the fumes of it, but you lean into the innovative future. 
Does that sound familiar where I am now? Yeah. And so yeah. fortunately, the CEO there, Chip Berg, who's still the CEO, he uh, he loved that notion. And he also gave me the freedom. And I think that's probably the biggest sort of moment that I, uh, and now it's moments, plural. Um, it takes true leadership to trust someone who might be a little younger, who might have a vision that's ambitious and bold, but can prove they can back it up. But before you've done anything, someone has to trust you. And I think I've never actually talked about this, but I think I have a an interesting ability to gain trust quickly, but then to back it up. And I and whether you're a musician and your fans trust you and then they see you and that, well, however that plays out, um, that played out at Levi's. And so I uh, I was pretty direct because I wasn't looking for a job and and they they weren't really clear what what it was. And then I went, flew home that night. And when I landed and they had my whole schedule, uh, Chip called and said, hey, JC. And I said, I know, I owe apologies to people because I was very direct, but you know, it came from the right place. And he said, no, 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 unmistakably it came. And we need that. He says, I'm coming up to have dinner tomorrow. And I'm like, okay. And that dinner that next night, he said, if you really are a pioneer, I dare you to come be the president of Levi's. And I'm like, what? And that was a real moment for me. I mean, what an incredible way to phrase that too. Yeah. And he, and he, he and I, he gave me the freedom. I took full positive professional advantage of that freedom. We built Levi's stadium, the single biggest investment in the history of Levi's. We pivoted so hard to the women's business because that's where the magic happens in fashion and in what we were doing. And we realized we had lost. We're like, let's get after her. And we I hired these amazing women designers and marketing folks and, they were the ones that crafted the future. And then I was able to reconnect with music and the Coachellas of the world. We, we paid attention to the Levi's flagships. We put a flagship in New York City and Times Square was before all respect. The team was like, well, the dollars per square foot and we can't pay that rent. And I'm like, well, <laughs> this was an interesting one with Levi's, with Levi's Stadium, one of my first board meetings. And one of the board members said, JC, can you guarantee this $220 million, 20-year investment in a stadium is going to pay off? And I said, I, I can't guarantee that. And they kind of went like, whoa. And I said, but I, here's what I'll guarantee. If we don't think bold and big, then we should reduce our ambition as a company. Don't say we want to be iconic and the leader and be in, in the center of culture and then open up an outlet store in you know, Chattanooga. You know, so um, they said yes, and it transformed the company at a moment where, where fashion was being marginalized to sports. Think about Lululemon. Think about Adidas becoming lifestyle. Think about Nike becoming lifestyle. And so, and, and music was also in there. And if, if I asked you, you know, where's the center of culture? You'd go this. I'd say, well, I'll tell you where it is. And you know the answer. It's in, it's in stadiums. It's in arenas where the culture of sport the culture of music. And what happens is people throw in a pair of jeans and their favorite player, right? Their, That's their right. Niners jersey, or their Coldplay shirt or their U2 shirt, or their Taylor Swift, and they're wearing their jeans. Let's be the unofficial uh, uh, jeans brand of fans around the world and put a stake in the ground for Levi Stadium. And we did, and it worked, and there it is. Headroom is produced by Old Soul, a one-stop marketing agency that understands the power of brand and nuance. Reach out to my guy Matt at Old Soul and supercharge your brand and content strategy. That's Old Soul. 
shoot Matt a note at aoldsoul.com. That's A-O-L-D-S-O-U-L.com. And now back to our guest. I'm curious, JC, about this. Do you feel, because as you were talking, I kept thinking about the helicopter vision, right? So these people who are wanting a guarantee, it's almost like you need to get them in the helicopter and say, guys, this is much bigger than this stadium, right? This is much, much bigger. Good way to put it. Um, Do you feel like you have the talent to spot the next JC or is that a blind spot? Because I find it very interesting in people who are incredibly creative and talented in an area where they can make, you know, sort of mountains move in that manner. Sometimes it's really tough to identify because they get conditioned in people relying on them whole, right? Whole hog. Yeah. And it's really, you struggle to build that muscle that says, wait a minute, I'm identifying that's the next. Yeah, that's a great, I mean, I tell you, that's a lifelong leadership journey. You touched on one there. And so, you know, as people ask, you know, what, what, what style of leader are you? And I fundamentally believe I say, it depends on the situation. Like I am a situational leader in that I can, if it's required for me to lead from the front, I'll find the fight and get to the front of it. If it's a situation where I'm confident the team can handle it, I'm right in the back in either either in trepidation or in a proud moment, like, do we got this or don't we? But more often than not, we got this. What I've learned is that, um, like, and I I was a a big skier and I was a tennis player and I, I, I do a lot of sports and I re- and I was an instructor too. And what I what I learned early as a tennis instructor is teach people the fundamentals and then let them get creative. If all of a sudden they're trying to get creative and it doesn't work, they tend to give up. And whether that's in music, you can't get overly creative in a guitar until you just learn some basic fundamentals. But then I would cur- I would encourage variations on a theme. And I was very and I continue to be clear because people say, oh, JC, I can't do what you do. And I said, stop, time out. That's not the goal. The goal is you find your way that connects. What is the goal? It's to sort of, you know, articulate something to, and you know, I love the simple definition of leadership. It's how can you, regardless of title, how can you influence a course of action that otherwise wouldn't have happened if you didn't engage? What's, What's your angle? And it could be, I'm smarter than people, not me, but if an individual is smarter, use your, use your smart. If you're, if you're more passionate, let the passion come through. And, and each of us have, have this innate DNA. And if you, it's strengths finders. There's this very real concept, like find your strengths and, and find it. Lionel Messi, his strength is his left foot. If you watch the most famous goals he ever makes, it's all left-footed, all left-footed. Think about athletes and they find their strengths, you know, Steph Curry, three-pointer, you know? Or, or as a musician, what their strengths are. And so I, 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 it's a long way to say finding the next JC, I don't look at it that way. I look at how can we find the next leader and what mode does the company need to be in? And there's times when I've said, I, I actually think the mode that the company needs to be in is not the leadership skills and, and experience I have. And I'm happy to move on. I haven't fortunately had to write a resume for many, many years, but I think that's the sign of a true leader is knowing what mode your company and your culture and your organization, your team in is if, and if it's the mode that you can contribute to be the leader, if you can't find someone who is in that mode. I recently interviewed uh, a billionaire, Naveen Jain, and when I talked with him about being a billionaire, you could see it. It was just so uncomfortable. He grew up 
in India and watched his father suffer because he had 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 a moral compass and would not fall victim to business practices that just didn't match his value system. And Naveen, it's still in him today. I'm wondering from your perspective, you've worked with iconic brands. It is very easily to write, I think, a story about somebody who could be labeled as iconic in their own right. But I'm really interested to know, I would, I'm going to make a guess that it's not comfortable even for me to bring that up in sort of saying you and an icon in that way. But do you have to have somewhat of a relationship with that in your own sort of mind so that you keep yourself within the space that keeps you you in that manner, right? Because we've seen countless stories of people where you, they probably kind of went off the mountainside in that regard, using that as a metaphor, and they, they just fall victim to the ego and these sorts of things. And it's got to be a delicate balance where, man, you taking ownership of that, I think we all benefit from the brands that you continue to enhance. Tell me about that. That seems like a relationship between just you and sort of the inside of you in your mind, like when you close down at night. It's not something you share with friends or spouses or family. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, I, I've never, I mean, very insightful question. I appreciate that. And so one of the things I fundamentally believe in, which isn't even business related, it's like, I think so many individuals, people, companies, communities, they, they all gather around the big moment. You know, what's the big moment that's going to happen in this intersection and whether it's you, when you graduate from college or when you, you know, those are real moments, but the magic for me has always happened in the little moments that collectively combine to create momentum. And so uh, people don't know this about me because they think oh, I'm this brand guy and this business guy. I love physics and <laughs> everything we, I know about business, I could actually learn from, from Sir Isaac Newton 400 years ago. The laws of motion apply to life. And the first law of motion is an object at rest stays at rest until you apply force. It means if, if you don't do anything, nothing happens. Be a force. And with a small F, a big F, an italicized F, whatever it is, <laughs> do something. So that's number one. Number two is force itself equals mass times acceleration. How big something is and how fast it can go. And big can be experience. Big can be smart. Big can be passion. And then how fast you start to get that into motion determines force. And then the third one, I think, is the one that keeps me grounded is for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And, and, and that's what I always stare down. And my dad, and I know I'm referencing him a ton, but he would say, never believe the highs of the highs and the lows of the lows. He was the youngest commander, uh, helicopter commander, I think, ever. He was one of the youngest generals. And by the way, I'll get to that. He was a general in the Air Force and an admiral in the Navy because it was Canadian and you could sort of tether that deal. And I just live with that. And I think those moments, all the magic happens in the small moments when, and you know that, when you see someone do something when no one's looking, I always go like, well, that's just how I am. And I think my team, every one of my teams of any company I've worked for would say, yeah, like he's just authentically engaged. And I really am. I really am. And sometimes to a fault where I'll do things for people that people are like, why did you take time with that? person who was never going to buy a guitar. Why'd you take them backstage? I said, because that was the most memorable music experience of their life. And that kid is going to come back in 10 years and say, I want that custom guitar because this guy named JC brought me backstage. And so I think there's another lesson in there, like 
how do you set those little moments into action to create momentum and play the long game and, you know, be, be patiently aggressive, I guess, you know, and that's what I've learned to be is, you know, who here, who, who, who's made a decision so fast. They go, Oh my God, I made that too fast. I regret it. All of us <laughs> who waited and delayed and said, Oh, it'll get better. I hope it just plays out better. And it doesn't. And so this balance of being aggressively patient, I think is a virtue that, that, that separates true leaders from leaders by title. Two things that, that you spurred in my mind is thinking about the helicopter. It's, it's as if your dad would be saying you, as you're getting a different vantage point, you also have to respect the power of the vehicle that you're in. Almost like you would tell a young child to, you have to respect water. Water is beautiful, but when you learn to swim, you've got to respect the power of that. And I hear that balance and understanding that you may push and create force and action and results, but there is a counter to that, right? And collateral damage. Is that fair in my assessment? What I'm hearing from you? I, I, I think you're, I mean, I love, I mean, man, I hope this goes on all day and I hope I don't make you miss your flight to Sweden, but, uh, but I think you're absolutely right. But I also think, and this is not exactly in line with that analogy, but I, I think also um, you gotta, you got, you can't fear liftoff, but what, what you should fear is if you haven't set the conditions for successful liftoff, don't lift off, you know, and one of my absolute leadership mantras to, to my team, and I'm honing it all the time is um, none of us can guarantee success in the future for the company, the business, the brand for yourself. But what you should be able to guarantee as a leader is you can set better conditions for success. So, you know, is the quality of your vehicle, is your navigation working? Are your instruments working? And again, I'm continuing to reference this because one of my dad's specialty was he was a low-level instrument-only helicopter pilot off the USS Intrepid in the Bay of Pigs Theater looking at sonar technology. So that is a very specialized borderline, well, not borderline, it is top-done stuff for the Navy. And so if you think about that, he... He, I grew up in this notion of setting conditions for success is critical because if not, if you fear liftoff, it means you haven't set conditions for success. And I think that's the way I would, I would look at it that way. I, I'm going to take a wild guess here and correct me if I'm wrong, but you, the style with which you engage and the authenticity that you bring to the conversations. Now, sometimes maybe that authenticity is, is hard for some people to receive, right? Based on their own sort of approach. But I also get the sense that, you know, you've had, you could have easily stayed at Solomon and still been there, right? Totally. You, you, but you've, you, it feels like these transitions, and it's not like it's some Hollywood ending kind of a thing, but I don't get the sense that, I mean, yes, people miss you, but the time that you were there was such an impactful time for totally. those companies that it's not, there's no bridges burned in that regard. It's sort of a, it's this very fluid kind of exchange of leadership totally. experience, ideas, creation. I think you, you nailed it. And, and so, but I also think, you know, certain values come into play and I, I've never in my remotest dream ever thought of joining a competitor. I don't respond to calls from headhunters on a competitor. And when I made the decision, um, ready for this, Levi's was about to go public. After six and a half, almost seven years of recrafting Levi's, setting the conditions for success, and not just because I say it, because the business results proved it, but the energy. When I joined Levi's in 2012, 
I was handed a, a, an employee survey. And the last question on the survey was, at Levi's Strauss and Company, do you think Levi's best days are behind it or ahead of it? 73% of people said our best days are behind us. So you understand the cultural dynamic you're walking to, which I was like, awesome. In, in <laughs> six years from now, we're going to be 99% best years are ahead of us. And, and, and it turned out that way. And so um, back to that mode and, and, uh, and we're about to go public and things couldn't have been better. And I'm living in Marin County and everything. I'm like, and all of a sudden this, I read this thing that says Gibson goes bankrupt. I was a musician. I have Gibson guitars. My parents were music. I mean, I grew up in it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I love music. I mean, th these are my albums behind me, by the way. That's Peter Frampton with the Gibson Les Paul. When I was a kid and saw Kiss Alive <laughs> too, Kiss only plays Pearl drums and Gibson guitars. I'm like, I'm going to have a Gibson guitar. I made a flying V in shop class when I was in 10th grade. I mean, that's my obsession. I never thought in my wildest dreams I could, I could help be a steward of an iconic brand Gibson but boy, when I got the chance. And so everyone thought I was crazy. And I'm like, I'm going to make a decision. And because it was bankrupt, Gibson four years ago, almost to the day was bankrupt, not borderline, not, you know, bad situation. No, they were wearing it. Physically bankrupt. And I thought, so through a series of engagements, I ended up, uh, I said, I actually said no at the first, because I, I had this mindset of like, why would I do that? And you know, and when people say that, it's like, why would I do that? And immediately they've already decided, you know, have you ever had a friend or, or yourself go, yeah, why would I do that? And you're like, move on. Then the next night I was sitting there playing my guitar and I said, that's the wrong frame of mind. I said, why wouldn't I do this? I get a chance to bring back an iconic brand that's broken. I'm passionate about it. I can make a difference. And it's in a place called Music City, Nashville. And, uh, and Gibson was, or sorry, Levi's was in an amazing shape. It's going to go public. Chip Berg's an awesome CEO. He decided with the board he was going to stay on for five more years. And, that, and he showed up for stability. And I'm like, this is awesome. I was actually a blocker to some people on my team. I had an amazing team. And I'm like, nothing, nothing happens until a Jenga piece moves. It's in good shape. And uh, I, I made the decision, but I couldn't tell anyone. Imagine that because of the bankruptcy technical embargo dynamics. So, so we weren't allowed to announce anything. And I'm like, and, and Chip gave me an amazing platform to say my goodbye and not tell people where I'm going to go. And I committed to him and the, and the board. I was not joining better, not even closely. And I said, when you guys find out, um, I, think, I think you're going to be okay with it. And you're going to be more than okay. And sure enough, they then here, we announced on November 1st, 2018, I'm the new CEO of Gibson. Um, I'd never even been to Nashville. And they're like, do you want to do a reconnaissance? I'm like, what? I'm going to, Nashville's not good enough for me. Are you kidding? I'm going <laughs> to city one-way ticket. And uh, we showed up here. And then this, the cool thing, when Levi's found out where I was going, Chip couldn't have been more supportive. The family said, how can we help get you through this amazing period of going public? It's, can you stay we want you to be part of that journey, but you got to do what you got to do. And so that's the high road. That is taking the high road. And by taking the high road and everywhere I've been, I've always taken the high road. I still have amazing relationships across the board. And then, and I say this because they tell me not about me, but they're really proud of what I'm doing. They're like, JC, yeah, Gibson, like, do this, you know? And I'm like, and in some ways, this is like the least CEO job I've ever had because 
it's like a noble cause. It's like Braveheart waking up and going, we've got to rebuild this. And we didn't have time. I mean, I had to put the noise cancellation headphones on and everyone's got opinions on what to do. And I'm like, we're going to focus on quality. We're going to invest more in quality than it's been invested in the last 10 years. I'm talking dust extraction, lights, Kaizen events, quality of wood, procurement, developing our craftsmen and craftswomen and training them to say, this is the new standard. We're going to make fewer guitars because our fingerprints, our new Gibson fingerprints are on every single guitar. Quality has improved significantly. We re-engage with dealers and said, we're not, you're not a dealer. We're not a manufacturer and you're not a retailer. We're partners. We're partners in this and we're going to prove it. Artists, artists, we're going to give you the tools you need to be at your best and we're going to engage and we're going to start up a whole thing called Gibson Media. We have Gibson TV, Gibson Records, Gibson. And we, we are now in the marketing realm for an artist, the most critical part of a lot of artists today. As a result of bringing their whether they're, 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 they're unknown and we can make them known or slash who everyone knows. Uh, here we go, right here. We decide to do Gibson Records and Slash says, I want to be your first artist. That's Slash's album, uh, Slash 4, that just came out and <laughs> you couldn't be more happy with it. So so now we're at this place at, at, uh, at Gibson where you know we've set the conditions for success, so to speak, but it started back to Sheriff Mountain. I didn't talk about Levi's. The very first time I had the stage at Levi's, I said, let me see all this research. And I read through it all. I'm like, so we are between four and 6% of people's closet with jeans, with a spend of jeans. People spend between four. I've never met you. You spend between four and 6% of what's in your closet on denim. Maybe it's six or seven. If you wear a lot of jeans or three or four, if you don't, but it's there. I said, so we're, we're not in 95% of people's closet in other ways. Every Levi's has a belt loop. Let's do more belts. Every one wears t-shirts and Levi's is synonymous with cool t-shirts. Ja Levi's jackets, denim jackets. Let's get into all these things. And, and the notion was not share of denim, it was share of closet. And we went after that. It was that same approach about the mountain. It totally, and people bought into it. And they should, because it's it's appropriate for. And now Levi's used to be, I don't know the exact numbers, but ninety nine percent, probably eighty nine percent denim, and then other things. Now it's like sixty five, and it's all these other categories that they're starting to well, what they are playing in and succeeding. Let's close with this. You you're gonna go. You're gonna grab a guitar. I want to know where you're gonna go. You're just on your own somewhere you you just you really would just love to be able to just play that guitar yeah what are you playing and would you give yourself a moment to say you know damn it i did it like do you give yourself the allowance to to soak up that moment it's a little bit like crimson tide when gene hackman yeah. and denzel washington and denzel starts talking as they they you know they rise above the water level and gene hackman smoking a cigar and he says man Shut up, man. Sometimes silence is, is where it's at. Tell me about that moment for you. Yeah. Um, the first response, simple one is, I, I don't think I'll ever have it. I really don't. And I say that like almost hopeful that I don't because people say, oh, you thought, when, where do you want to retire and all that? I, that? The concept of retirement is a foreign concept to me. And I, I understand many concepts, but Retiring isn't one of them. And uh, and as long as you can contribute, and I, I think there's 
there's so much more to be done. Uh, and I know what I can achieve. And when I connect with the next generation, I, I support, but I more than support, I challenge them. You know, I said, and someone says, well, what happens if you don't have experience? I said, learn to ask the best questions. And I did a whole TED talk on that, asking the right questions. And so, you know, when I showed up here, it was just so stripped down and looking back, I mean, I showed up with a piece of cardboard that said this. SOS. On, on Gibson. Yeah. Hey, the SOS signal went up and I'm here because if, if everything was good at Gibson, I wouldn't be here. And this SOS is a distress call, but it, it, you know what it stands for? Save our sound. Save our sound. Save the sound of Gibson because it's worth it. For 128 years, Gibson has been synonymous with shaping and crafting, inspiring, innovating sound. That's got to be the mission going forward. And so let's not just save our sound. That's what CEOs are expected to save a company or, or bring it back. Let's go after this. You can't see the fine print. What does that say? <laughs> share our sound. Share, share of sound. Our, share yeah. of sound. We're going mm -hmm. after the share of sound. And it's this conceptual dynamic that people say, well, how do you measure that? I said, you go to a concert. Are more people playing Gibsons? You see what they're writing on it. Songwriters are using. You go to a guitar store and say, are there more Gibsons in here than there was 10 years ago? And all of a sudden, and when you listen to songs and you see the artist and make the connection, um, you talk about the share of sound, which is a never ending quest for this company. And I, I think of myself as that, you know, and if I was going to play, if I was going to play a song that would be associated with who I am, I doubt it's, it might be getting in a helicopter and seeing a different perspective, but there's no sunset yet. And it would probably be like, you can't always get what you want. That's what it would be. I love it. I absolutely love it. That just, I mean, <laughs> the brand of you is so authentic in that regard. I mean, uh, incredible. I, I hope that this is inspiring for people. I don't even play an instrument, but I look at those guitars behind you and think, yeah, my, my 10 year old takes lessons and maybe, it, maybe dad needs to join him. Uh, it's look. not too late, man. I'm telling you, there's, there's more, get, come to the garage and, and you and I, I will teach you one chord and you'll get hooked. The data suggested pre COVID eight out of 10 people stop playing guitar for a ton of reasons. That data is reversed. Eight out of 10 now play and are continuing to play because they learned three chords, five songs, and they had the, the guts to lean in and say on their LinkedIn page, <laughs> play guitar. It's a deal. We want to thank uh, JC Curley. What an incredible opportunity. Uh, selfishly, I think I learned uh, hopefully as much, if not more than the audience. Uh, JC, continued success. Uh, what a pleasure. We want to thank JC Curley again of Gibson. Uh, what, what a treat. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. Thanks for taking the plunge into Headroom, where we uncover the why behind the what and who impacting our lives. Headroom is a production of Rainlight and co-produced by our friends at Old Soul. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger, and this is Headroom. <laughs>